Start. And we have a go for auto sequence start. Discovery's onboard computers have primary control of all the vehicle's critical functions. T minus 17 seconds and count. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, start, 2, 1, yeah, okay, that isn't actually what happened. Hello again, my wonderful geeky friends. Welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. That was the sound I had hoped to start with this week. The sound of Artemis 1 atop the space launch system being blasted into not Earth orbit, not this time, but into orbit around the moon. And sadly, that didn't happen. Should have happened on Monday, didn't. Uh, might happen on Saturday, as you listen to this, if you're listening to it on the day it comes out, Thursday the 1st of September. What you just heard was a random space shuttle launch. And to be fair, the Artemis 1 launch above the space launch system will sound similar, just louder. Because it's got the same solid rocket boosters that the shuttle had, just bigger. And the same engines that the shuttle had, the same main liquid fueled engines that the shuttle had, but four and not three. So it's going to be loud. But more on that later. But first, let's dive straight in to our review of She-Hulk episode two, which, if you're listening to this on Thursday, the 1st of September, the day it drops on both the podcast feed and Harrogate Community Radio, has been available on Disney Plus for a week. I am assuming that if you are a dedicated fan who is desperate to avoid spoilers, you have seen it already. If not, here's the spoiler horn. Spoilers! Spoilers! Okay, you've been warned. From this point, there will be spoilers for She-Hulk Episode 2. She-Hulk Episode 3, which dropped today, if you're listening on the 1st of September, I have not seen yet. You are free from spoilers for that. I couldn't spoil it if I wanted to. I don't know what happens. Episode two, what happens? Well, it's an interesting episode. I enjoyed it. I'm not sure I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed episode one, but I did enjoy it. We get a little bit more of the fourth wall stuff. Um, we get a little bit more of Jamila Jamil as Titania. Uh, and I've seen her in some fun promotional stuff on social media as well, which I quite like. Uh, what we have here this episode is Jennifer coming to terms with being a She-Hulk, a name she hates. She didn't pick it, and she thinks it's stupid, possibly a little bit demeaning even. But she's stuck with it because that's the media. She's also now dealing with consequences. And I liked this aspect of the show because there is a, a, a theme in the comics of She-Hulk that Jen is perpetually just a little bit down on her look. She's a very good lawyer. She's a very good superhero most of the time. But somehow things often don't go her way. And this is what we see here. She hawks out in the courtroom in episode one and saves a bunch of people. You know, the jurors are saying, yeah, you know, she saved our lives. This, this woman chucked a desk at us and it would have, you know, certainly injured us. So, you know, yay her. Woohoo. But 
In place of the gratitude of a grateful city, Chen gets fired. And she gets fired not because she did a terrible thing. She did a great thing. She saved people. But the case was thrown out because the jury found the defendant guilty. Jen was the prosecutor. The defence team said, well, that's a mistrial. The jury cannot be fair at this point. The jury is swayed by the fact that she just saved all their lives and a mistrial is declared and they lose the case. Jen gets fired because her boss says, look, I know it wasn't your fault, but you're too big of a risk. I can't have stuff like that happening in my courtroom. We will get sued. So she's fired and on the market to join a private firm. And she tries and she tries and she tries and she keeps trying. But she keeps getting the same answer. You're not a good fit. We don't want the publicity. We think people would treat you like a gimmick. And so she's stuck. Until the head of the law firm that was defending the guy who she prosecuted when she got fired comes to see her and says, I'd like to offer you a job. And because Jen is desperate, she takes it. And then she discovers what the job is. She turns up to work as a lawyer, as Jennifer Walters in her human form. And she's met in the lobby by her boss, who says, no, we need you to be hooked out around here. And then she's shown her office, a nice office. But she's been asked to head up the superpower law division. The firm is setting up a division to defend superpowered individuals. And let's be honest, that means supervillains who come into trouble with the courts. Yeah, the odd superhero might get sued for property damage or whatever. But basically, if you are a lawyer defending superheroes or superpowered people, at least, you're probably going to be defending villains, super villains. And Jen is not sure about that. She also thinks it's a little bit tokenism. She knows that just as when she gets a job, at least a, a high powered job in a legal firm as a woman, people will be saying she's only here because she's making up the numbers or she's a, a diversity hire or she slept her way to that position. She turns up to work as She-Hulk. People will be saying, well, the only reason she gets to head up that division, the only reason I was passed over is that she's got superpowers and that's not fair. And actually, you see that a little bit as she walks to her office as She-Hulk. You see people. And I like the fact that they didn't just make it men. But you do see people at the, at the photocopier and the water cooler kind of looking as though they've got a bit of a bad smell under their nose as she walked past. There's clearly resentment there in the film, in, in, the, in the firm. And I liked that because I think that's realistic. I think when even reasonable people are passed over for promotion because somebody else has a talent they couldn't possibly have, no matter how hard they worked. I think you do see some resentment there. So I think that's perfectly reasonable. And then she's given her first case. Oh, dear. She is sent to represent Emil Blonsky. Now, if you have not watched the 2009, I think, uh, Incredible Hulk film with um, what's his face, whose name I can't remember, because uh, it wasn't 
It wasn't Ruffalo at that point. Mine's gone blank. Could look it up. Not going to. You've got Google. You may not. If you haven't seen that film, and lots of people haven't, it's not very good. You may not remember Emil Blonsky. Emil Blonsky brilliantly played in both the film and in this by yeah, Tim Roth, an actor I admire very, very much. He is the abomination. Um, part of the villain squad in The Incredible Hulk. Um, Ed Norton, that's who it was. The Ed Norton film. Um, Blonsky was the villain in that. A kind of hawked out thing called the Abomination, who tried to kill Banner. They levelled quite a lot of New York as he tried to kill Banner. And Jen clearly is uncomfortable with this. And she says, well, I, I can't take this case. I've got a clear conflict of interest. He tried to murder my cousin. To which her boss says, yeah, whatever, I don't care. But if you don't take this case, you don't work for us. And so she has a dilemma. And she's given the weekend. To figure it out. And so she agonises and stresses. And eventually she calls Bruce. Who's like. Oh yeah. Yeah he's quite chill now. I quite like him. He's alright. You know. We've, we've laid our differences to one side. And he gives her his blessing. To take the case. So she does. And she goes to see him. And she says she'll take his case. She calls her boss. She says I'll take his case. And the boss says. Hmm. Okay. And Jen says, yeah, no, I've got the perfect defense. I, 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 you know, he's clearly rehabilitated. He is, you know, a, a changed man. It's unjust to keep him there. We've got an absolutely surefire case to get him released. And the boss says, you might want to put on the news and hangs up. And so she puts on the news to see footage of Emil Blonsky, the abomination taking part in an illegal superfoud fight club, having just broken out of jail. And that's where we finish. And of course that's where we finish, because of course that's what happens, because this is Jennifer Walters, and things do not go right for Jennifer Walters. She had her career all lined up, and then it was taken away from her by circumstances beyond her control. And then she fixed it, and she had her career all lined up. It wasn't quite the one she wanted, but she could have built on it. And now, busted again for stuff she couldn't control. Why didn't I like this as much as the first one? I, well, I think, actually, I didn't like it as much as the first episode. Because I, I like Jennifer Walters, and I don't like to see her get messed about. I think that was it. I like the character. Uh, I like the character in the comics. I like uh, Tatiana Maslany's portrayal of the character on the TV show. And... I hate it when bad things happen to people I like, whether they're fictional or not. So I think that's what it was. The performances are solid. I mean, Tim Roth is as brilliant an actor as it is possible to be. Um, Tatiana Maslany continues to be great and to impress. The writing is solid. Uh, I'm a little bit... I've gotten used to the episodes of Marvel stuff being like around about an hour. So She-Hulk being around about half an hour I'm always surprised when it finishes. So, you know, there's that. Overall, I'm still digging this. It's not my favourite Marvel TV show. I don't think I can say it's my least favourite. I don't think I have a least favourite, if that's possible. I suppose if things are on a spectrum, something has to be at the bottom. But I, I don't think... I've, there aren't any Marvel shows I don't like, I think is where I have to 
pitch for that comment. It's not my favourite. I didn't. I'm not enjoying it as much as I enjoyed them as Marvel, for instance. It's not up there with Wonder Vision in terms of being innovative. It's not up there with Hawkeye in terms of being just charming. But it is charming. It's just not as charming. It is a really good show. I'm thoroughly, thoroughly enjoying it. I've spoken to a couple of people over the week in the shop who are not, and they they were unspecific as to their reasons for not enjoying it. They just said, as far as they were concerned, it was utter rubbish. And I've got to respect that, I guess. Uh, I just don't understand how you could watch this show and think that. If you like superior, I mean, my wife hates the show. Well, actually, my wife has no opinion on the show. She won't watch it. But that's because my wife hates the entire concept of superheroes. She thinks it's utterly ridiculous. And I respect that. And yeah, if you can't get your head around the idea of superheroes, you ain't going to like She-Hulk. But if you can, and honestly, if you're shopping at Destiny's, you probably can. I don't quite understand the objection, but there you go. That's folk. So anyway, if I was giving marks out of 10, which I don't do, but if I was giving it marks out of 10, it's a solid seven. Maybe a six in part. It's a solid six and a half. So, you know, enjoy it or not on that basis. That's my that's my recommendation. Anyway, waffling now. So I'm going to move on to the important news of the week, which, of course, is taking place in... Okay, so we've already had the headline. Artemis 1 did not launch atop the first flight of the space launch system this week. It may go, it may go on Saturday. I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed. Bid me hopes it doesn't because I'll be at work. Let's deal first of all with why it didn't go. It didn't go because there was a reasonably minor problem as I'm as I'm reading the reports, a reasonably minor problem with one of the four main engines. Now, just to explain what that is, the, uh, the space launch system has six engines in the first stage. There are two solid rocket boosters. And if you can imagine the space shuttle, those are the white rockety looking things that are strapped on the side of the big orange fuel tank. Okay, it's got two of those. They're much, much bigger than the ones used on the space shuttle because the SLS is a much bigger craft. But they're basically the same thing. They're using the same aluminium based propellant and they are in effect, giant fireworks in that once you've lit them, you can't turn them off. Once they go, they go and they will burn until they run out of fuel. What they're for is to give a massive punch of power to get the spacecraft through the lower layers of the Earth's atmosphere, which when you're going at the speed of a rocket takes a shed load of power because the faster you try and go through air, the more resistance you face. So the more power you need. And because the rocket has to be accelerating to escape velocity, it has to be accelerating to very high speed indeed. I mean, we're talking thousands of miles an hour in an atmosphere, which is hard to get through. It's easy to underestimate that and to think, no, really? It's just air. Well, if you want to imagine how much resistance you can get from air that is moving at speed, which is basically what we're talking about when you are trying to move through air at speed. It's the same thing. Imagine all the times you've tried to walk against a really strong wind. Okay. Now, the strongest wind you're likely to have walked into 
in Britain at least, might have been 50, possibly 60. If you were somewhere incredibly stormy, maybe 70 miles an hour, but even that would only have been gusts. Now imagine trying to walk against that. Odd, isn't it? Well, that's just air moving at speed. Now multiply that by a factor of 10. And imagine what it must be like trying to get through that air, how much power you would need at 700 miles an hour. Now try 7,000. It's a lot of power. And that's what those engines are for. But, I say, functionally, they are basically fireworks. Once you've lit them, there is no control over the burn. Subtlety, you need liquid-fueled engines. These can be throttled up and throttled back to give you a, an amount of control, quite a lot of control, actually. They're quite sensitive. Now, the space launch system, which is going to be launching Artemis, this new NASA rocket, uses four space shuttle main engines. Like the solid rocket boosters, they are tried and tested technology. These things have flown hundreds of times. Not these specific engines, but this design. They have gone through literally hundreds of firings. I mean, there's been, what, 150, 160 space shuttle missions, something like that. And, you know, lots of test firings on the ground and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, these are engines we know work. And these are engines that the engineers at NASA know a great deal about. They've been working with them since the late 1970s. And there was a time, I think, when um, a temperature differential between one of the engines and the other three might not have caused a scrub in the way that it did this week. What's happened over the last many years is that NASA has become a lot more cautious. Back in the days of Apollo, when you know it was all about having the right stuff, and there were young engineers walking around NASA with slide rules literally in holsters on their belts like six guns because they were the new cowboys. And there was this incredibly gung-ho attitude at NASA where it was all about beating the Ruskies and we had to be first, so we had to be fast and we didn't have time for all of this namby-pamby safety nonsense. Those days are gone. Okay, Apollo-era NASA would have launched this week. And if the vehicle had exploded, they'd have gone, eh, and gone back to the drawing board and figured out why it had exploded, and that would have been fine. We are not in Apollo-era NASA. We are in now-era NASA. This is an era that has lost the Space Shuttle Challenger and the Space Shuttle Columbia. Both tragedies could have been averted if people had paid more attention and been a little bit more safe. Challenger in particular... There was a guy, an engineer, who was desperately trying to get the launch of Challenger stopped right up to the moment it launched because he was convinced there was a problem with the O-rings on the solid rocket boosters that could cause a terminal failure. And he was right, and he was ignored, and people died, and NASA doesn't want that to happen again. Not because they're cowards which I've read in parts of the media this week, but because they understand what terrible PR that would be, and they also know how much this stuff costs. And I'm not just talking financial cost either. I mean, this rocket is ridiculously expensive. They really don't want to have to buy another one to replace it if they don't have to. So I'm not just talking about money. You see, back in the old days, back in the Apollo days, the American public was very gung-ho for Apollo. And when the three astronauts, uh, Gus Grissom, 
uh, Ed, Ed White and Roger B. Chaffee were killed in the Apollo 1 fire. Again, an accident which could have been averted if people had thought it through. And they didn't because they were rushing. Not the astronauts, but the, 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 the engineers. When those three astronauts died, the reaction of the American public was, well, that is a great and noble sacrifice for America. And it made people, if anything, get behind Apollo more. If that were to happen now, the mood in America is different. The mood in America now is, wait, we spent all that money on that thing and they blew it up? Come on. And it would actually damage NASA. People would question NASA's competence. Um, questions would be asked in Congress. And it might it would seriously damage the, the Artemis One program in the eyes of the American public, who pay for all this, don't forget. And... Worse than that, it would damage the Artemis program scientifically too. There's time involved here. It's going to take a, take a while to build the next SLS rocket. They've got to do Artemis 1 before they do Artemis 2, which will be, be crude. So if this fails... It's not just that they lose the rocket and the science and all of the stuff that's on board this mission. They have to wait until they've got another rocket before they can do this again. That will push back the time frame by years, probably a couple of years at least, which makes the possibilities of getting people to the moon and the NASA Gateway Station in orbit around the moon, that makes all of that not less likely to happen, perhaps, slightly less likely, probably would actually, um, but it also just means it will happen later, which just holds things up, and nobody wants that. And although we, this is not like the days of Apollo, where America was in like a full-on race with the Soviets, there is still a time factor here. America wants to get there before China. Make no mistake, China is going, and America wants to be there first, so that they can say, hey guys! Welcome, because that'll be a very different dynamic to America pitching up when the Chinese are already there, because the Chinese, they're not that friendly in space. They're really not. So, you know, getting there, for, there's all kinds of, of political and scientific reasons why this mission must not fail. So given that they can leave it until Saturday, like less than a week, they're going to risk launching with an engine that might not be tip top. They are not. So. Perfectly sensible decision. It's got nothing to do with cowardice. It's got nothing to do with lacking the, the, the Apollo spirit. It's got nothing to do with not having, the, having the cojones that the Apollo guys had. It was pure pragmatism and the desire to not turn a little bit of the uh, Florida seaboard into a bit of a crater. That's my long-winded way of telling you why the mission didn't launch. But let's get into what the mission is anyway, because... I would have done this had it been on its way to the moon at this point. Uh, so I might as well do it. Then you'll know if it goes on Saturday, it goes on Saturday and you'll know what's going. What is the Artemis mission? What is Artemis? What is the space launch system? What's the program? What's the spaceship? What's going on? Right. Well, the Artemis mission and the Artemis program is a vision. It's an idea. It's different from the hardware. Art the Artemis program is the mission to take initially NASA, if we're honest, but eventually other allied space agencies to the moon. 
back and continue what Apollo started. The Artemis program involves initially having uncrewed flights around the moon. That would be Artemis 1. Then a crewed flight around the moon. That, that will be Artemis 2. Now, Artemis 2 will not land on the moon. Even if they wanted to, they can't right now. They don't have the equipment. Artemis 2 will take humans beyond low Earth orbit for the first time since 1972. It will do a loop around the moon and come back. It's essentially the same mission as Apollo 8, but just with different and better kit. Those are the only two hard planned Artemis missions in the books right now. Everything else is aspirational, but the, the next step after that is to establish the NASA Gateway Station. They may change the name. NASA Gateway is envisaged as a space station that will orbit the moon pretty much in perpetuity. Well, you know, for as long as these things last. And it will serve as a base camp. In effect, it is a place that astronauts will be able to go and prepare for lunar landings. And, you know, do experiments in microgravity around the moon, uh, do research of the moon. It's envisaged that unlike the ISS, Gateway would not be permanently staffed. That, you know, you would go do your mission, come back, you'd leave the thing there and the next person would then go whenever they were ready to go. For my, my hill walking friends, imagine a bothy, but in lunar orbit. That's basically Gateway. and. Once that's established, it is envisaged that things like landers will be left permanently there. So you, you know, you catch your spacecraft out to the gateway station, you dock at the gateway station, you maybe spend a couple of nights at the gateway station, then you hop aboard a lander, go down to the surface of the moon. Now, once the gateway station is established, the next part of the Artemis vision is a lunar base, something established on the surface. Now, at the moment, I don't think they've got a clear idea how they want to do that. The lunar surface is ridiculously hostile. When it's daytime, it is outrageously hot because there's no atmosphere to protect you from the heat of the sun, let alone the ultraviolet radiation. When it's nighttime on the moon, it is outrageously cold because you've got the entire moon between you and the sun and no atmosphere in which to hold the heat. And you get these extremes of temperature actually quite quickly. So the surface of the moon, very hostile. We know this. There's research going on into what kind of buildings might work, whether you could build something out of uh, the lunar surface regolith, let's call it soil, um, whether you might want to burrow down, you maybe use lava tubes, which we know exist on the moon. There used to be seismic activity on the moon. Uh, uh, my current thinking is that probably they're going to want to be underground. Being underground solves a hell of a lot of problems all at once. It allows you to keep the temperature stable. It shields you from radiation. It, it's, yeah, sensible, I think, to have un an underground habitat on the moon, either human-made or inside a lava tube or something like that. And obviously, once a lunar base is established, then we can start getting into all the fun stuff. The, the rovers, uh, the moonwalks, the science, and possibly the industry. Um, there's a lot of helium on the moon, for a start. Helium's quite useful. We don't have a lot of it on Earth. So 
you know, there will be commercial exploitation of the moon at some point. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but it's going to happen whether I like it or not. So, hey, that's just part of what happens. I think that's quite a long way in the future. I think that's we need to get being on the moon to the point that we're almost at with being in low Earth orbit, where, you know, private companies are doing stuff. Commercial companies are doing stuff. And we're a long, long way from that. That may not happen in my lifetime. But that's the Artemis vision, if you like. And we're a long way from achieving that. We haven't even had Artemis 1 yet. We don't even know if the spaceship works. So now let's turn our attention to the spaceship. The spaceship is not Artemis. The spaceship is not called Artemis. The spaceship probably has a name. I could look it up. I haven't. Um, the type of spaceship is an Orion. Orion spacecraft is what is sitting right at the top of the space launch system on Launchpad 39B right now. What it consists of is two parts. It has a cone-shaped command module at the top. That's the Orion capsule. That's where the crew will be. And although the, this is an uncrewed mission, it's not true to say there is nobody aboard Artemis 1, and we'll get to that. If you remember the Apollo spacecraft, it looks very much like an enlarged version of the Apollo command module. It sits on top of the Orion service module, which looks like a slightly squished version, although it is wider, it's got a greater diameter, but it looks like a slightly squished version of the old Apollo service module, which if you've seen Apollo 13, you know what these things look like. And that's basically what it is. It's an updated version of that technology. Why have we gone back to that? Well, one of the things we learned from the space shuttle missions is it's a lot easier to put your payload on top of a rocket than it is to strap it to the back of a rocket, which is what the space shuttle did. And one of the key reasons for doing that is unlike the space shuttle, where if anything went wrong at launch, the crew were basically dead because there was no escape system in the space shuttle at all. If you sit on top of the rocket, if something goes wrong and you have a fast enough response time, and computers do, you can just fire the bit with the people in it off the top of the exploding rocket and get them to something approximating safety. This makes the Orion system, as the Apollo system was in many ways, orders of magnitude safer than the space shuttle, at least at launch. The other reason they've gone back to this is the Orion system was never really intended to be used for taking people to low Earth orbit and back. So space plane technology and wings and all that kind of stuff, not really applicable. The Orion project was originally conceived as part of something called Project Constellation, which was intended to take humans back to the moon about a decade and a half ago. No, can't be that long. Maybe a decade ago. Uh, and from there to go on to Mars. The Constellation Project was shut down by the Obama regime because they took one look at it and said, <laughs> yeah, that's not happening. And they were probably right. I mean, I was very cross about it at the time, but they were probably right. That's the bit at the very top. That's the Orion spacecraft. That's the bit that will go to the moon and back. Underneath that sits the space launch system. Again, this was originally envisaged as part of the Constellation Project. And it is basically a giant space shuttle fuel tank sitting on top of four space shuttle engines with two enlarged space shuttle solid rocket boosters strapped to the sides. 
it is a huge, huge thing. Uh, if you can imagine a 17-storey building, that's about how high this thing is. It is more powerful than the Saturn V rocket, which took Apollo into space. It can carry a lot more payload into space and into lunar orbit than the Saturn V system could. It is a great leap forward in NASA terms. In terms of power, in terms of range, in terms of mission capability, it is also hideously expensive. There's no way you would use this for anything commercial. There's, you couldn't do anything commercial with this. It simply would not be commercially viable. The only people who could afford to build and fly something like the SLS is pretty much the United States government. I don't think anybody else could afford this. Um, which, you know, this is not new. The same was true of everything Apollo did. And to be fair to NASA right now, relative, you know, relatively adjusted for inflation and all of that, Artemis is costing a fraction of what Apollo cost. Partly because we've learned some stuff, partly because we can do things more cheaply and more efficiently, partly because we are reusing existing technology. Apollo was building everything from scratch. Uh, Artemis is basically just going... Yeah, that space shuttle stuff worked really well. Let's make it bigger. And, you know, so in many ways, Artemis has it easy compared to Apollo. And I've got to admit, I kind of like it. I think it's quite cool looking. I, I Unfashionably, I don't like the look of SpaceX's Starship rocket. I, I get that it's powerful. I get that it will do exactly what it's supposed to do brilliantly if they can ever get it to work reliably. And they will. They really will. I just think it looks odd. Whereas the SLS, maybe it's my age. Maybe it's because it has that shuttle vibe. And I'm a kid of the shuttle program. Yeah, that was my space mission when I was, you know, a child. It was anticipating the launch of the space shuttle that was really firing me up. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's just nostalgia. But I love the look of the SLS, that massive orange tank. But it's not short and fat like the space shuttle one was. It's tall and slender. And it just looks, it oozes power. It just looks powerful. So, yeah, that's the SLS and the Orion spacecraft, which will take, eventually, people on Artemis missions. But right now, Artemis 1 has no people aboard. But it is not entirely unoccupied. First of all, inside the crew capsule, where the crew will eventually go, there will be Helga and Zohar. Now, Helga and Zohar are not human. They are mannequins, rather weirdly um, referred to as phantoms by NASA, which creeps me out just a little bit. Um, but they are... I'm, I'm going to go with crash test dummies. That works for me. They are crash test dummies. And they really are, in that they are made out of materials designed to mimic human bone, human soft tissue, and all the organs of an adult female. They are legless, because apparently legs are irrelevant in space, um, and they are female, and they are female for a reason. Okay, They're sharing the same trip, and they are identical. I assume they have name badges, so that the scientists can tell them apart. But they are undertaking a slightly different mission. Um, Zohar will wear the Astro-Rad anti-radiation vest. Whereas Helga will not. When they get back, 
obviously they will be examined to see how the radiation has of space has affected the organs of Helga and Zohar differently. You know, does the Astro Rad Vest provide any protection at all? Um, is Helga being unprotected a problem for her? Would the radiation cause her serious problems were she, you know, actually alive? Now, you might be thinking, why female forms? Well, this is interesting. Apparently, and I didn't know this, but apparently, typically, women have greater sensitivity to the effects of space radiation than men. So if you're going to test the Astrorad vest to see whether it is protective or not, it makes more sense to test it on something mimicking female anatomy than male anatomy, because female anatomy is more at risk. If the female anatomy is protected, then the male anatomy will be too. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I think this might be the first time I ever remember this happening, where... People have gone, oh, yeah, women's bodies are different than men's bodies. Maybe we should test for women, too. Because actually, in most medical science, people don't test on women. There are all kinds of reasons for not testing on women. There's a the possibility they might be pregnant. So you don't want to be testing untested drugs on them. Thalidomide. Um, <laughs> but actually, although there are many ethical and sensible reasons to not test things on women, it means that we don't actually know how things affect women. It's all kinds of medications and stuff that we don't know whether they work on women or not because it's never been tested it's probably a, a whole episode uh, certainly a segment of geeking looking into this but you know i mean people die women die of heart attacks because med medics don't realize they're having a heart attack because their symptoms of heart attack are in heavy air quotes atypical by which they mean they're not the way that men have heart attacks and so nobody notices which it's probably not great. So kudos to NASA, actually, for figuring this one out. It's women who are at the greatest risk from this stuff. So let's test the stuff on things that are supposed to be women. I, I'm, I was going to go into a, a whole long thing about how the Astro Rad Vest works. I'm not going to. I think I'd bore you. Uh, and it's important to do this test because you can't recreate the conditions of lunar orbit on Earth. So if you want to know how these vests work, then it kind of makes sense to to test them around the moon and it also makes sense to test them before people have to test them now i know what some of you are thinking the apollo astronauts didn't have these and they seemed fine well maybe but first of all they were men and therefore less susceptible than some of the female astronauts who will go to the moon will be also the apollo missions were incredibly short duration we were not sending people into lunar orbit for many weeks or even months Artemis will do that. So longer exposure, greater risk, more precautions needed. Also, one of the things, sadly, that we've learned is that the Apollo astronauts were not OK. Several of them died from cancers, which may well have been. I mean, it's, it's impossible to prove a link, but it, they may well have been caused by their exposure to radiation on those lunar missions. OK, space is dangerous. So that's the first thing. Uh, Helga and Zohar uh, testing this important bit of kit. They are joined. They will not be alone floating around the capsule. They will not. They will be joined by Sean the Sheep and Snoopy. I know. Now, this is not the first time Snoopy's been into space. Snoopy is a bit of a veteran. It is the first time Sean the Sheep has been into space. 
And you might be wondering, what? Really? Why? And they're both there for the same reason, really. One of the things that you do when you are sending things up into space is you have something that's quite soft and not likely to damage anything if it hits it, unrestrained in the cabin, so that you've got a visual aid to know when you are in microgravity, when essentially you will be, for all intents and purposes, weightless within your space. It's useful to know that before you unclip your seatbelts. And you may have seen, if you've watched footage of um, certain of the SpaceX Dragon capsules, they always have soft toys floating around behind them. That's why. Why soft toys and not like a cushion or a ball or something? Because soft toys are funnier, honestly. And what astronaut doesn't want to take a soft toy into space so that they can then give it to their kid or their, their nephew or godchild or whatever and say, here's Mr. Bear. Mr. Bear came with me to space. And then be able to show them the footage of Mr. Bear floating around. Of course you're going to do that if you can. Come on. Um, Sean the Sheep, in particular, has an actual mission. Sean the Sheep, and I'm actually not making this up, Sean the Sheep is the official representative of the European Space Agency aboard the Artemis One mission. Not even kidding, actually true. Links in the show notes to the European Space Agency's page, which I cannot re read with a straight face because I love it so much. I am now quoting from the European Space Agency website. The specially trained woolly astronaut, Sean the Sheep, has been assigned a seat on the Artemis One mission to the moon. Sean's assignment was announced by ESA's Director for, for Human and Robotic Exploration, Dr. David Parker. David Parker said, Sean's mission's assignment rounds off the first phase of the latest members of our astronaut corps, with Italian ESA astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti, currently on the International Space Station on her second space flight, Danish ESA astronaut Andreas Morgensen, named for his second flight, and before we introduce our new astronauts from the 2021 call for selection later this year. This is an exciting time for Sean and for us at ESA. We're woolly very happy. Yes, he said we're woolly very happy that he's been selected for the mission, and we understand that although it might be a small step for a human, it's a giant leap for lambkind. <laughs> Honestly, I can't read that with a straight face. I love it so much because what a brilliant thing. What an absolutely brilliant, brilliant, brilliant thing. It's publicity. It's outreach. It's a way to talk to kids about space. It's a way to talk to kids about science and it's a way to explain what the mission is and what astronauts do that's kind of fun because they aren't just sending Sean the sheep into space they've done so much more than that Sean has been through every aspect of astronaut training there are pictures on the ESA website of him in the vomit comet learning how to do zero g stuff um there are pictures of him in the various ESA training training facilities with other astronauts. Um, he, the website says, and again, I'm quoting from the website, under the supervision of an ESA team, this flight prepared Sean for his role. And they're talking about his flight in the Vomit Comet, the uh, Zero G Airbus uh, A310. Um, this flight prepared Sean for his role as a space traveler in his film, 
a Shaun the Sheep movie, Farmageddon, released in 2019. It offered insights into the rigorous training that all astronauts undertake to prepare for spaceflight, which he will now experience for real. And I love, I love so much they've leaned into this bit. I can tell you, because I talk to people about stuff like this, there are kids who are being engaged and enthused in all aspects of aeronautics and space science because they've seen Sean the Sheep do this stuff. I keep saying representation matters. I didn't know I was talking about sheep, but apparently I was, and I am here for it. it it's a zero cost thing. You know, it doesn't cost anything to take Sean the Sheep around all the places that people from ESA were going anyway and take some pictures. It doesn't cost anything to chuck a, short, a Shaun the Sheep onto the Artemis 1 mission. They had to chuck something in there. It might as well be him. And honestly, the same goes for Snoopy. NASA hasn't leaned into Snoopy in the way that ESA has leaned into Sean the Sheep. But he's there for the same reason. He's there so you can show the kids something familiar doing stuff in space. I'm, I'm sure there will be cameras inside the Orion crew capsule. I'm sure we will see footage of this stuff. Um, you know, it'll be in the show notes next week if it's available. It'll certainly be in the show notes whenever it's available. And, you know, this stuff matters. It's important. It's silly. But it's not stupid. And if you're wondering how much of an impact dumb stuff like this can have, I will point you at the Canadian astronaut, uh, Chris Hadfield, who did a couple of things. Um, first of all, you may remember, this is many years ago now. Uh, it might be, might be even a decade ago. But when he was aboard the International Space Station, um, there's a guitar up there, because of course there is. And he made a music video of him playing... David Bowie's track Major Tom, which is a weird song to pick if you're actually on a space station, but OK. Uh, that went kind of viral. It made massive news. It, it, it got the International Space Station back into the news headlines again for the first time in a while. He also actually was it him or was it? It might not. This might not have been Chris Hadfield, actually. I might have to look this up and put it in the show notes who it was. Uh, there was also an astronaut who. When you go to the ISS, you're allowed to take a certain amount of personal items. There's a certain weight limit you've got. Uh, I think it might have been Commander Mark Kelly, who's American. It might have been Mark Kelly, whoever it was. Um, it was somebody who was going to be there for a while, so they had a greater weight limit than you would normally have. And he used part of that allowance to take up a gorilla suit. He didn't tell anybody. He just took a gorilla suit. And then one day he put on the gorilla suit and hid. And then jumped out on people. And the, the results are on YouTube and they are absolutely hilarious. Is that good science? No. Was that maybe not the most sensible use of his weight allocation? Yeah, it probably wasn't. Was it funny as all heck? Did it go viral? And did it make people feel positive about space? Yes. Mission accomplished. Um, I point you at Alan Shepard playing golf on the moon. Same thing. And... Looking at the time, I think that might be the end of our first part of talking about Artemis because we've only got 12 and a half minutes of the show left and there's so much more to talk about. So I guess we'll wrap up space here. Um, I'm not going to do a what's up in the night sky because it's the same as last week. So, yeah, we'll leave that there. And we will move on to other stuff. <laughs> Space 
Okay, sort of, but not quite. Moving on. Last week, I did a couple of book recommendations, and I have another one for you. This is not only a book recommendation, this is also a bit of a quest, because as far as I can tell, it's out of print and really hard to get hold of, but I cannot recommend it highly enough. And given that we are talking about going back to the moon, uh, I think it's it's timely. Uh, my copy was given to me many years ago, easily over a decade ago, by a very good friend, one of my oldest friends from university, who knows me far too well. And the book is Full Moon by Michael Light. It's a picture book, essentially. It is a book of remastered photographs from the Apollo missions. Photographs taken on the moon, photographs taken in the various spacecraft, close-ups of things in crystal clear resolution. When we think of the moon, we think of those blurry black and white shots that we have as the archive footage. They took really nice cameras to the moon. Not a lot of film, which is why pictures are a little bit limited, but they took some really nice cameras. And the shots they got, the photography they did, it's utterly, utterly beautiful. I mean, I know this is not exactly radio gold, me talking about pictures, but they are beautiful. I'm flicking through the book as I speak. The, the images in it are just unutterably gorgeous. And if nothing else, it's another reason to go back. Because you know what? It's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. There are panoramic pictures in here of the lunar surface. It's a, an actual other world that someone took pictures of. And Michael Light went back and remastered this stuff. A, a real archivist's job. It's a beautiful book. And if you have any interest in photography or the moon, it's a book you should try and check out. As I say, as far as I can tell, and, you know, I, I am a bookseller. I have an account with books wholesalers. As far as I can tell, it's out of print. It, it, it's not impossible to get, I don't think, but it's going to be difficult to find. So that's your quest. Secondhand bookstores, eBay, go look, go find. See what the best price you can get is. The cover price was $12.99. Uh, that was a long time ago. So, and it was still in print then. So see how you, see what you can do. Report back. Info at destinationofvenus.co.uk. I would be interested if anybody found one in the wild. And since we're doing recommendations, I'm going to do you one very quick comics recommendation this week as well. Because I kind of missed doing it last week, you know? I'm going to recommend something really mainstream. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Thunderbolts from Marvel Comics. Um, issue one is out this week. It is £4.50 at the moment at Destination Venus. Uh, might be less in other places that are bigger and get a better discount from the wholesaler than I do. Uh, but it's it's a new team book. Uh, just a little bit of background. For reasons you don't need to know, Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, became mayor of New York in the Marvel Universe for a bit. In that time, he took the name of the Thunderbolts, which is an, a well-established team name in Marvel continuity, and he gave it to a bunch of basically super criminals and then said they were the only costumed people allowed to do crime fighting stuff in New York. And of course, they were criminals and they were doing it for criminal reasons, just like he was. Well, Wilson Fisk is no longer mayor of New York. He's been replaced as mayor of New York by, of all people, Luke Cage, Power Man. Except, of course, now he's Mayor Cage. He's no longer Power Man. And... 
He wants to reclaim the name of the Thunderbolts because he was a Thunderbolt back in the day and he feels the name's been dishonoured. There is a law passed by Wilson Fisk in New York City right now that only the Thunderbolts team authorised by the current mayor, whoever that is, only they can do the whole costume superheroics stuff in New York City. So if Mayor Cage wants superpowered people to defend the city from, you know, other superpowered people, he needs a new Thunderbolts team. Not just one that he can trust, but one that can rehabilitate the name. Enter Clint Barton, former leader of the West Coast Avengers in a couple of its iterations, as Hawkeye, former Avenger, and all round, well, mess, really. You see, Clint, Clint is very good at shooting things with arrows. He is very bad at pretty much everything else. But when Luke Cage asks him to lead the team, which is something that Clint actually can do, reluctantly, Clint takes it on. He is joined initially by America Chavez, the wonderfully overpowered superhero who can fly, who has super strength, who is virtually invulnerable to damage and who travel via star-shaped portals that she can punch into existence. Not even kidding. She's, she's, she's kind of impressive. On the team, Kara Kilgrave, now known as Persuasion. She used to be known as Purple Girl. She is a psychic and she can do mind control. And then there's a guy called, I am not even kidding, Gutson Glory. He's a bit of a mystery. We don't know much about him yet. And also, not a spoiler because she's on the cover, but it, see, I don't like it when they do this. I'm going to say that Monica Ram Rambeau, otherwise known as Spectrum, is on the team. And I'm going to say that, and I'm not spoiling doing the spoiler horn thing, because she's on the cover. But it is treated in the, in the text of the comic as though that's a big reveal. There are also... Um, a couple of other characters who aren't on the team yet, but who are on the cover of issue one. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. The new Power Man um, is also part of the team. So, you know, you've got the mix there of muscle, leadership, skill, psychic ability, uh, travel through space, all that. It's a good, solid team. They've, they've balanced the powers quite nicely. And it's a good, fun book. Issue one is all about establishing the team. Uh, it's not told using linear time. We jump about the timeline a bit. We do, we've got some flashback, got some flash forward. But it's basically the, the, the putting together of the team and the team's first fight and the reasons that Luke Cage has for putting this team together and the reasons that some of these people have for joining the team. It's one of those team books. It's not really about superheroics. That happens. It's about motivation. It's about loyalty. It's about teamwork. It's about standing up for tradition. It's about standing up for things you care about. And, you know, all of that stuff, it's hokey. It's, it's, it's even trite at this point. But done well, it's still narratively a nice cardigan and a pair of warm slippers. Lovely cup of cocoa that's got just a dash of chilli in it. Because I don't want you to be thinking this is all just warm and fuzzy. It's not. There's real action here. But it's comfortable. This is a traditional superhero comic. And in this time of people trying to do new things with the medium, which I support and applaud, 
it's it's just nice to have something that readers of comics in the early 70s, even the late 60s, might have recognised. So that's Thunderboss, issue one, written by Jim Zub, um, drawn by Sean, I'm going to say Izaxi, but I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, uh, coloured by uh, Java Tataglia. Java Tartaglia, I'm reading this out loud for the first time. I should probably have practiced. Uh, apologies um, if I got that name wrong as well. Um, but lettered by Joe Sabino from VC, whose name I do know how to pronounce. So, phew. And I really liked it. Can't recommend it highly enough. Good fun. Uh, if you're looking for something innovative and, and taxing and high art, this is not it. If you just want a good fun read, yeah, Thunderbolts issue one. It's a good one. Pink cover also. Never fails. Okay, and moving swiftly on to the Geek Community Notice Board. Um, very quick shout out, some notes for your diary. Uh, Sunday, the 18th of September at half past seven. That is the Geek Pub Quiz at Major Tom Social. That's half past seven, Sunday, the 18th of September. Then Thursday, 29th of September, also at 7.30, the Geeky Movie Quiz at the Everyman Harrogate. That's half past seven. Thursday, 29th of September, the Geeky Movie Quiz at the Everyman Harrogate. And on Sunday, the 20th of March, the Geek Pub Quiz strikes back at Major Tom's Social in Harrogate. So that's three Geek Pub Quiz dates for your diary. I cannot stress enough what a great night out the Geek Pub Quiz is. All of their iterations, the movie quiz, the kids quiz. There won't be another kids quiz for a bit. I think the next one's in half term. They're just great. Steve and Helen and Chris are brilliant at bringing just a really good fun night to a room full of people. And I really do mean a room full. They're great nights out. They're not expensive. In these straightened times, the chance to go out and mix with a whole bunch of people somewhere warm is not to be sniffed at. So make a note in your diary, get along to that if you can. Quick reminder, Thought Bubble coming up second weekend of November. Tickets are now on sale. Uh, links to that in the show notes. And that, on the 24th, 25th and 26th of September, to the city screen in York, it is the Dead Northern Film Festival. Back, fully back, after two years of not being able to do it the way they wanted. Fully back. It's a great independent horror movie festival. The people behind it are amazing. You should check into that. Links again in the show notes. If you like horror movies, you need to get down to Dead Northern at the end of September. It's going to be brilliant. If you have a geeky thing you want to promote in or around Harrogate or elsewhere, we do have a national and international audience for this via the podcast. Info at destinationvenus.co.uk. Let us know. We are here to promote your geeky thing. That email address, incidentally, info at destinationvenus.co.uk if you have any questions or comments about any aspect of the show. Some of the questions I answered about Artemis came to us that way, uh, as indeed did some of the suggestions for our wonderful women of science, who will be back next week. Again, I'm not rushing a wonderful woman of science. Anyway, all of that and more still to come next week. We will see you then. Until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Keep watching the skies and stay geeky. You take care now. We will see you very, 
very soon. <laughs>